everyone, it is Stephanie Postles, the host of Up Next in Commerce. Before we get into our latest interview with another e-commerce leader, I wanted to let you know that the Up Next in Commerce podcast is now available for sponsorship for the first time ever. By partnering with us, your company will be connected to interviews with the most compelling founders, CEOs, VPs, and digital leaders in the world of commerce today. You have nothing to gain but thousands of followers and millions of impressions each and every month. Reach out to me at stephanie at mission.org to see how your business can benefit from partnering with our team at Up Next in Commerce. We have an interesting relationship with our manufacturers in which it's not like a normal brand in which they're a vendor and we're a client where we just place a PO and then we'll mark up their products. and That's how we profit. Instead, we actually have a financial relationship with our manufacturers in which they actually are taking on inventory risk and we're taking on the marketing risk of this inventory in which their incentive is to take the inventory risk for a higher yield or higher rate of return on the inventory that they're producing and owning. What comes to mind when you think about the relationship with your manufacturers? Chances are you have the same picture in your head as so many other brands. You see a series of events that starts with opening a purchase order and goes down the line of tasks, including paying for your items, getting them shipped, and then starting the process all over again. It's a transactional relationship that has seen very little disruption through the years. But the times are changing, and a company called Italic is leading the charge when it comes to developing a new framework around partnering with manufacturers. Italic is a membership-based brand that gives customers access to products produced by the same manufacturers of the top brands in the world. Jeremy Kai is the CEO of Italic, and he likes to say that Italic is a marketplace-inspired supply chain. On this episode of Up Next in Commerce, he explains exactly what that means. Jeremy describes new and different kinds of partnerships with manufacturers that, for the first time, makes them true partners in business. Plus, he explains why that partnership is leading to a better end product and happier customers. He also dives into new ways you can leverage manufacturers that many aren't aware of, and he details the metrics and strategies that subscription companies need to be focused on to rise above the competition. Enjoy this episode. Next in Commerce is brought to you by Salesforce Commerce Cloud. Respond quickly to changing customer needs with flexible e-commerce connected to marketing, sales, and service. Deliver intelligent commerce experiences your customers can trust across every channel. Together, we're ready for what's next in commerce. Learn more at salesforce.com slash commerce. Hey listeners, it's Stephanie. Before we dive into the episode, I want to let you in on a little secret. Did you know that Mission has the number one e-commerce newsletter? It's amazing. It has really good news and insights and case studies that you will not find anywhere else. So go subscribe, mission.org slash upnext in commerce. All right, on to the show. Welcome to another episode of Up Next in Commerce. This is your host, Stephanie Postles, co-founder of mission.org. Today, we have Jeremy Kai on the show the CEO of Italic. Jeremy, welcome. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, I'm excited to have you on the show. I was mentioning earlier that I've read quite a bit about you guys. I see you in a lot of the uh, e-commerce newsletters that I follow. So it seems like you're growing in popularity, at least when it comes to people writing about you right now. Yeah. <laughs> I, don't know if that's a, I don't know if that's a good success metric, but we're, we're, we're doing, a, I think, a good job on media coverage right now. There you go. I think it's a pretty good one. So tell me a bit about Italic for anyone who hasn't heard about it, doesn't know what it is. I would love you to uh, give a brief overview of what it is. Sure. So Italic is an annual membership that costs $100 a year, and our members get access to hundreds of products that we design and develop in-house, ranging from cookware to bedding to towels to apparel and accessory footwear. Um, and many more coming soon. But the difference is we sell them at prices where Italic doesn't actually make a profit. And this actually results in pricing that is dramatically lower than both direct-to-consumer companies as well as traditional incumbents, oftentimes in the 40 to 50 to sometimes 70 to 80% range. And uh, we've been around for about two and a half years, but we've only launched the membership uh, about a month and a half ago. And uh, and so far, it's been a pretty good start. Very cool. So you have this membership and you're not making money on the actual products. Tell me a bit more about like 
what would be an example of something you're selling and how are you encouraging people to sign up for a membership to get access to everything you just mentioned? Sure. So one example that uh, of the product that we sell, and, and all this is uh, this applies to all of our products, is uh, let's just take our Slumber cotton sheet set for example. So the the sheet set sells anywhere from I think uh, actually I might have to actually look at this for cross reference, but I think it's like That's anywhere okay. from eighty yeah. to one hundred twenty dollars, and those are prices where you know we're not actually making money. Um, those prices do include things like, you know, freight and warehousing and, and fulfillment fees, but generally, you know, it still comes out substantially lower than, than than the prices that our competitors would set. And then in terms of how we're actually attracting new members, um, really, I'd say it's from two general ways. One is, I think the goal is for our members to be saving money on their first purchase. So um, this oftentimes comes through the, the lens of product marketing. Uh, if we do a great job of really letting the products, you know, tell their own story of saying how great quality they are, the same manufacturers and so of so and so brands, uh, you know, which certifications these manufacturers have, um, you know, what specific details of the products, you know, really really sell the product itself. I think that actually helps sell the membership for us because we don't really have to say like, hey, with this membership, you're saving all this money. Um, instead, it's like, hey, this product is obviously uh, really great and and it's really high quality. But then once you once you look at the price point, the perceived value is like, oh, I'm going to save um, pretty much the entirety of my membership fee in one or two purchases, um, which we see in, in the vast majority of cases. Typically, 93% of our, our new members will break even on their $100 fee in, in, the, in one order. But on the flip side, on, on the membership, you know, this is different than the standard transactional model in which you have to be a member, a paying member in order to purchase anything. So I think we do have to do um, a fair amount of education in terms of showing our our audience who might become members, hey, um, this product, um, you can only buy it if it's a membership. This is how the platform works. Um, This is why it's different than a brand. And I think we have to put out a lot of uh, content in, in terms of actually sharing, like, this is how we were able to put together this, this offering that doesn't really exist elsewhere. So, um, so we do a little bit of both, but I would say um, right now we lean a little bit heavier towards um, product marketing since um, we have a lot of new exciting launches coming up. That's awesome. So talk me through a bit about like, what was your thinking behind creating a membership program for it? Because I think I saw you started out with it and then maybe you stopped doing it and then you started again. Feel free to correct me (laughs) if that's not right, but tell me about like, what was that journey like? (laughs) Yeah, you know, it was not easy. Um, I would say that so 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 the way I like to view it is like the first two and a half years of our business, we've really been focused on the supply side of of our operations. So mm-hmm. you know, building out that product assortment, and it, exactly like you said, we we did launch in 2018 um, with a membership product, and within basically a month or two, we we um, decided very early on, like, hey, we had three manufacturers in three categories at the time: uh, handbags scarves and eyewear. And as you can imagine, those are not necessarily high frequency, you know, purchases to substantiate a membership value proposition. So we actually never actually charged anyone for the membership. It was always kind of a a test to see like how the response would be. And overwhelmingly, we saw that the product response was great. The quality was great, but I think the offering was too limited at the time. So instead for the following two years, um, we ran a transactional model in which we made money through marking up our products, um, albeit not as much as a brand would. Um, our products might be marked up two to two and a half times, whereas our competitors will will mark them up five, 10, 15 times sometimes. And that's how we made our money. And, and really the incentive was how do we build a product assortment that's large enough and so I guess wide enough and deep enough um, to attract a member to actually convert. And um, around, I would say Q4 of um, 2019, we, we saw, I think, to be totally honest, like I think we saw two things happen. One was the structural, I guess, implosion of the venture direct-to-consumer model, um, in which a lot of brands, mm-hmm. I think, who had been raising money and, and going out um, with this one playbook that hadn't been set maybe back uh, back in like 2013 to 2017, I think suddenly realized like, hey, we are not technology companies. We're a brand and we make money through transactional volume. And basically, I'm just trying to say, you know, we saw the writing on the wall if we were to continue that model. Um, and then in Q1, we also took a hard look in terms of our user behavior. We saw frequencies, frequencies of, of purchases, um, you know, our lifetime values get to a place, our, our, our product reviews, our, our NPS scores all get to a place where we felt confident in our product assortment to date. So when we first started, we might have had maybe 30 or so SKUs. Now we have over a thousand SKUs. So it finally got to a point where the product assortment felt mature enough to launch a membership product. 
So we tested that. And then um, basically right when we started testing it, that's also when COVID hit. So we figured, you know, there was either two options. One was, you know, we just pull that and just focus on kind of building the transactional model again and, and getting it into a sustainable place, um, which is still the goal, right? We don't want to build an unsustainable growth model or alternatively kind of stress test the model in the peak of, I think, uh, consumer uncertainty in which we would see like, hey, does this value proposition of saving money resonate in the time when it would matter the most? So um, so thankfully, you know, it did. Um, and I think uh, from April, uh, May, June, and July, we, we monitored our, our cohorts and user behavior really closely and uh, wanted to make sure that the membership was something that we had conviction in. And, um, and eventually we got to a point where we realized like, hey, this is, I, I guess the way I like to put it is our customers always liked us, but our members like absolutely loved us. So, um, mm-hmm. so we decided to go all in and then finally release the public, you know, version of the product in July. Yeah, that that's great. I mean, that's good seeing quick pivots and seeing like, what is the market telling us and, you know, where are things headed and trying out different models? How are you going about building out maybe like a financial model? Cause I'm thinking if you have, you know, only a membership subscription type model, like there's probably only a limited market or, you know, you can't, scale indefinitely, like there's only a certain amount of people who will be on that versus making profits off of each product. I'm sure those are two very different models. Like how did you think about it financially yeah. when trying the two different ones out? Yeah, you know, that's a that's a very valid point. And I think we knew going into it that there is a lot of subscriptions out there and a lot of subscription uh, fatigue in, in um, at least the States and in, in the US uh, in which everyone has like a Prime Now or a Prime membership or a, a Spotify member, um, you know, subscription or Netflix. And, and to add one more to that is is always asking a lot. So I think we knew going into it like, hey, this is kind of like all or nothing in which like you can't launch a kind of half-baked type of membership product. And, uh, and I think to, to, um, to the financial level, you know, I think two things are, are worth noting before we decided to do this. One was the, the fact that, you know, we are capping our upside to $100 very literally for pretty much the extent of the year. And, and the incentive in that case is, one, can we launch products and provide a service that our members love so much that they'll stay for years to come in which our LTV our lifetime value in that case would you know, become quite substantial and hopefully our, our churn would be low and retention would be high and so on and so forth. So, so I guess that's one area is, you know, we, we really were aware of the fact that like if we capped our financial upside, um, that the immediate short term would be that we're limited to $100 for the year, mm-hmm. but the amount of utility and value that we could provide to a member would be so great that they hopefully stay for years to come in which our LTV would grow to a point where it would actually outperform our transactional type of uh, uh, behavior. And then on the, the second point, it was exactly like you said, you know, memberships aren't for everyone. We're, we're very well aware of that. But I think something that, that um, has been, you know, exciting for us to see is, um, you know, if we're able to build this type of product, it is genuinely massively different than um, anything close to us. So, you know, whereas most of these direct-to-consumer brands, they're basically providing products and a story um, to a customer, which is an incredibly, incredibly competitive market. Um, we have a product where it's like, hey, you know, for $100, you get access to all the products we sell at a price where we don't make money. And I think that's a genuinely differentiated product in which like, we know it's not for everyone, but we think value-driven commerce is, is always, it's not sexy per se, but it, it is something that is very attractive to a very large segment of the American you know, consumer base. So, um, so I think we were willing to take that bet and of course, we wanted to monitor, you know, really closely so that we weren't losing money on transactions, at least, um, and at least that we were, you know, break even. Um, and we were able to accomplish that uh, within the months of the pilot. So we felt confident in rolling it out more broadly. But I think to, you know, to answer that more directly, if we didn't see either conviction, or if we didn't see user traction, if we didn't see members using the platform or, or membership, or if we saw, you know, our NPS or product reviews, you know, drop, or if we saw an increased complaint rate, increased return rate, et cetera, then I think we would have actually um, probably returned back to the transactional model. But it was something that we felt confident enough in um, just off of a couple months of data that we decided to go all in. Yeah, that, that's awesome. I mean, I think that's so great because it really shows a longer term vision and commitment to be around where I think actually a lot of D2C companies right now are kind of missing that. And I don't know if it's because of the, you know, VC stage where it was like grow really quickly, but it seems like a lot of people are more ready to just quickly make as much money as possible, maybe sell the company off, like see what happens afterwards. But I really like the idea of like actually telling your customers, hey, we're only going to make a hundred dollar profit for the year off you that, you know, essentially cover some of our costs. I could see that 
really helping a customer want to also support you guys along with just wanting it because maybe it's a very good service and platform to use. Thanks. Yeah. I mean, that was pretty much the bet. It was, um, I mean, the reality of, of the business right now is if you're a direct-to-consumer brand and you're starting out nowadays, um, you might raise one, one round of financing, let's say, anywhere from 500K all the way to like three and a half million or something of the sort, um, if you want to pursue that route. And that, that's pretty much all you're going to be able to raise, or at least assume that's the last capital you're going to raise. And then subsequently, you know, you're going to try to sell. Um, nowadays, um, what I've seen is, is the, the, whether it's a PE firm or a conglomerate, or a larger, you know, direct consumer brand that might be interested in acquiring one of these assets, you know, it's now valued off of EBITDA as opposed to revenues or, or um, you know, uh, run rates, which is what we saw in between 2014, let's say in 20, 2019. So I think the reality is like nowadays, if you're trying to build a venture scale business in this model, it's, it's really, really tough. And I think the actual advantage of doing so is doing so sustainably, you know, growing off the business off of cash flow as opposed to equity raises and, um, and going that route. And then I think for, for the companies that have already raised are in this kind of tricky spot where, where, where we were for sure. Um, you know, we kind of had to look ourselves in the mirror and just say like, Hey, what is it? What is something that would be significantly differentiated in the market that has, um, you know, technology scale, um, outcomes that, that would be potentially, you know, accessible if we were to do everything perfectly right. And I think that's the only reality where we can actually like continue as a, as a venture scale business. And I think that's what um, we had to really just operate with the mentality of, I think in terms of like the, the customer empathy too, like we always knew that uh, our prices were good, um, that we always came maybe 15 to 20% lower than the next direct to consumer brand. Truth be told, like if you were to compare, you know, our products were, which were objectively great products next to a brand's products that built all of their community messaging, advertising, copy, et cetera, off of that single category, 15 to 20% off might not be enough to sway, you know, one of their customers to decide mm -hmm. to purchase the value option. Whereas nowadays to go much, much lower into the 60 to 70% range, that's, um, that's, that's a lot more powerful of a, you know, a sway. So I think for us, like we, we knew that it was a risky bet, but I think the customer would ultimately like it a lot more. And so would the investors and uh, I guess business community at large. I know the brands don't like us, but that's, that's another story. Well, that's actually a good segue into, I, I wanted to hear some of the behind the scenes of, you know, partnering with these manufacturers and thinking about the psychology behind, you know, this is also bought, or let's see, it's manufactured at a factory that also produces product. Like I saw that on your website mentioning, like it also manufactures this, this, and this. And I was curious to figure out like, what was the process to partner with some of these manufacturers and then also be allowed to say, you know, these brands are also built at, or manufactured at this factory as well. Like, it seems like that'd be a tricky area to play in. Yeah. You know, I can't deny that. <laughs> I think we have a unique value proposition in that case. And that's really what drove, I think, a lot of our early um, interest in the brand over the first two years. Uh, you know, in full transparency early on, we I was personally quite nervous about it since it is a pretty radical statement, um, uh, especially since like we position ourselves not so much as an individual brand, so much as um, let's say a platform or a marketplace or a retailer. So, um, so I think in the early days, like we were very careful and all these things, it's not to say that we've like loosened up on this. Um, we're still very, very careful about auditing all of our partners, um, making sure that we're working with the best of the best in each category, regardless of where they are in the world. And, uh, and oftentimes, you know, that comes along with saying, Hey, this, uh, this product is made in the same manufacturer as X, Y, and Z brands. That's part of the, you know, the selling points of, of the product. But I think in terms of the, the, the tricky part was obviously on the manufacturer side, we have an interesting relationship with our manufacturers in which it's not like a normal brand in which we are a vendor and they're, uh, sorry, they're a vendor and we're a client mm -hmm. um, where we just place a PO and then we'll mark up their products and then we'll, that's how we profit. And the best we can do in that case is like get, you know, letters of credit or net, net 30, net 90, you know, et cetera. Instead, we actually have a financial relationship with our manufacturers in which they actually are um, taking on inventory risk and we're taking on the marketing risk of this in inventory in which their incentive is to take a, uh, the inventory risk for a higher yield or higher you know, rate of return on the, the uh, inventory that they're producing and owning. And then our risk, of, of course, is making sure that we can sell that to our members at a price point that is still radically lower than the competition but at a place where they, you know, they'd be happy with the profits. So I think um, that was actually the tricky part because, you know, manufacturing, and this is actually my personal like family background um, is a really hard business and it's margins are already razor thin. 
on a final sale, um, a brand might, or DTC brand might take like 80% of the margin uh, and cost might be like 20%. And the manufacturer might actually take like 5% of that cost. So oh, that's wow. like honestly how it works. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't matter if you're like a legacy brand or a direct to consumer brand, like manufacturers treat them all the same because it is the same for them. I think on the, on the flip side for the manufacturer, like they are not oriented to take capital risk. So, you know, they have predictable revenue. It's, it's like, if you place a PO, we expect payment by a certain date. Whereas on Italic, you know, you, there is no legitimate end date for a certain PO to be paid. So it's a little bit nuanced. And that was actually the hardest part, I would say, of convincing these manufacturers to join. It really wasn't the brand piece. The brand piece we're always very careful of. You know, we always do very careful audits to make sure that they're factual claims. Um, we always do audits with our um, our general counsel as well to make sure that, you know, we're, we're um, making claims that are factual and, and uh, on, on the trademark side. And then on the copyright side, we have a, a development system um, when we're merchandising that there's at least like a number of differentiating points um, on the product. But we've actually never really run into major issues on this. Perhaps that's because we're a smaller brand right now. And, and you know, as we grow, you know, the, the issues might pile up. But, um, but at least for now, it, it hasn't really been, um, the, the legal side hasn't been a, a big issue. Uh, I would say it's actually more so convincing the manufacturers to take on this new type of model. But I think now that we've been around, we have, you know, over 50 manufacturers we work with. And, and I think we've, we've had a really good relationship with all of them thus far. So I think it's other brands always come into question, but it's never actually been like a point of contention. I could see that being really beneficial for you having the background in manufacturing for those manufacturers to also feel like, hey, this guy gets me. He understands. He like, you know, knows that we don't have big margins. I want to talk a little bit more about that piece. I could see a lot of the manufacturers really liking that you have a background in manufacturing because you understand the tight margins and you're not trying to maybe push them too far. And so I was wondering, one, had they ever done this model before where they're taking on inventory risk? And then two, were any of them scared to work with you because they didn't want to, you know, make the brands that they work with upset? Yeah, you know, I can answer the second one uh, first, which I I think is actually pretty straightforward. That has never been a reason why a manufacturer wouldn't work with us. Um, I thought it would be, but I guess in actual practice, um, you know, I think it hasn't been. And and the reality is like most of these manufacturers have a number of clients and um, I think they will readily... Um, offer new clients the the current client list and say like, hey, this is who we work with. You know, you should trust us as part of the the vetting process. So um, what we're doing is bringing that information that all the brands already know uh, and offering that to to a customer as well. So one more layer of information that a normal brand would never offer. So the the bigger issue with the manufacturer is actually more so um, just capital. It's like, hey you know, you got to front hundreds of thousands of dollars for this first run and you're not going to see a payback um, until we start selling it. And and depending on when we decide to launch it or decide to um, really invest in, in growing that, that category or product offering, the return might not be immediate. So I think that was actually the biggest problem. Um, you know, every so often we'll, we'll hear... Um, it, it come up as like, hey, you know, we, we'd prefer not, that not to happen, but with regards to the brand names being mentioned, but um, it's never been a reason as to why a manufacturer wouldn't work with us. Um, it's always been capital related. And then I think, you know, to the point of uh, the model itself, I think people have tried different approaches to this over the years. Um, you know, in the States, at least, there's really no one doing anything like us right now because it is an extremely, I would say like you, you really have to be, like aware of how manufacturing works, how to communicate with them, how to work with them, also how to partner with them. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not something that like the vast majority of American brands are, are will ever understand. And, and for good reason, like they really have no reason to because the entire business model of commerce is built on markups as opposed to us where, where, where you can basically just treat them as a vendor. And if, if it's not working out or if you need better pricing, you can always countersource and you know, so on and so forth. So the relationship there was always rather fragile, whereas for us, it's, it's, uh, it's very strong from day one because we have to be in which we become basically financial partners uh, um, immediately. So I think like they haven't necessarily, and we work with manufacturers in Asia um, predominantly. Um, in Europe, um, in the US, and for the majority of them, they have not. These are not small mom and pop merchants or artisanal shops. Um, you know, they are pretty professional, large scale production um, houses for um, for very large runs. We work with like five different public, publicly listed manufacturers. So, so I think for them, you know, this model is. I like to call it like a private label as a service in which they can experiment very rapidly. 
um, if it works. Uh, and we do all the design and development in-house. So we take care of pretty much all the heavy lifting on, on the stuff that they don't have. But if it works, I mean, great. Uh, and if it doesn't, the downside is basically the capital that they put into it. And we haven't had that happen yet. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, I, I think we like to think of it as like a marketplace-inspired supply chain, which um, you know none of these manufacturers have encountered before. But but it is something that I think has has promise. Yeah, it's so interesting thinking about everything that's going on behind the scenes. And I honestly have not even gone deep into the world of ma- manufacturing, so I have so many questions. But one that comes to mind, which is probably maybe a more basic one, but how did you even go about finding out who manufactured what products? Like if I owned Prado, which I do not, (laughs) I definitely don't. But if I did and I was like, hey, who makes this? Like, this is really nice. I want to find out, you know, what factory it's coming from or who's actually behind the scenes making it. Like, how did you even start that process of finding that out? And then, you know, finding the next one and the next one and maybe getting referrals. Well, I mean, you kind of just named it. It was... um... Sourcing is a weird business in which it's still, and this is not just sourcing, but like a lot of the supply chain is is still heavily relationships based mm-hmm. um, in which it's like, who do you know? Who do you know? Who do you know? And that's who you're able to work with. And, uh, and in the early days, you know, how we, I, I personally uh, met and lived between like China and Italy for the first um, year of the business. And and uh, met with hundreds of manufacturers, many of whom are now our partners. But in the beginning, we're, we're very skeptical. You know, who is this guy? Who is this company? And I think, uh, you know, it's 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 the, the best way to put it. It's like in terms of sourcing, the best way to do it is through referrals. Um, we've tried everything from digital platforms to sourcing companies to, you know, even trading companies just to see um, what type of quality and, and price point we could achieve. But ultimately, we've always found the best option would be to do direct sourcing ourselves. So we actually have an internal team coming from the likes of Patagonia, Arcteryx, uh, Zulily, and, and Amazon, uh, really focused on on sourcing you know, the world's best manufacturers in each given category. And each time we want to enter a new category, we'll always ask for referrals from our existing manufacturers. There's digital you know, products that, that help you find manufacturers um, through um, you know, other sources, but generally we found the best have always come through referral. Yeah, I think I've looked online before looking into maybe these, maybe this is a 3PL that I was looking at. Either way, that whole world seems pretty behind the times when it comes to trying to find things online and get details about it. And so, yeah, it does seem like referrals would be the best bet in that kind of, in that industry. So when it comes to inventory risk, like you were mentioning that the manufacturers take on the inventory risk, do they also have a say when it comes to the pricing of the product? Yep, they definitely do. We are, um, you know, hand in hand with our manufacturers at every single point in in the development journey, from material selection, you know, color dyes and sample reviews, and so on and so forth. In which, you know, if we are talking about cost structures and and cost payments, or sorry, sample reviews, we're always thinking about price, and and we're always very transparent with our manufacturers in terms of what our research tells us. So, if we believe a certain you know price threshold is too high, you know, we'll tell them. Um, and vice versa, they'll tell us like, hey, this is getting expensive. Do you think your customers or members will still want that? The incentive for a manufacturer is to earn a um, a higher than normal profit margin on italic sales because they're taking on the inventory risk. So they're, we're able to pay them out, um, you know, substantially more than they they would ordinarily make. So I think, you know, they're very uh, in tune with with our orders, sometimes even more than we are in, in terms of the performance. And we've also built a lot of internal dashboards that we... Um, you know, we'll share with all of our manufacturing partners for them to log into, view the performance. Um, you know, sometimes we'll need to set price points that are lower so that will encourage product to move um, faster and they're able to cut down on their margin. But still, you know, again, it's at price points that are pretty much close to cost. So it doesn't really, you know, move the needle too much nowadays that we're, we're past the transactional model. So it's easier to do that on, on the development side um, when we're actually developing these products. But or on the flip side, you know, if a product is actually performing way too well, um, you know, they might actually ask for us to develop like a more premium version or a more expensive material, not necessarily higher quality, just a different material. So that's, you know, those, that's like, for example, we, we started with cotton sheets. Now we offer uh, and it was sateen. Now we offer percal. And, uh, and we're looking into linen. And then we also offer um, a eucalyptus uh, lyosol sheet set as well. So, so those were examples of like where we saw um, you know, consumer demand really expand um, what our manufacturers wanted to develop. And as a result, our price points were able to change quite a bit depending on the product. Yeah, I was thinking about that, that these manufacturers probably have a ton of insights into what's selling with their other brands and you know what consumers are interested in. 
And I'm wondering, like, are they even allowed to share that and help influence your guys' product designs and say like, hey, we see this, you know, plain uh, shirt with like a lion on it is selling really well with Anina Bing, (laughs) which we just had on the show. Okay, so this is, I I guess there's two ways to look at it. (laughs) One, One way really is from the lens of like, hey, you know, the manufacturer has... Um, what I call like extraordinarily delayed insights into performance mm. in which the only time the manufacturer actually knows about how, how well a certain skew or style is doing. And this is, you know, we're primarily talking about fashion and apparel um, in other, you know, soft goods and in home, for example, it's a little less seasonal, uh, yeah, seasonal or trend driven. Um, but in apparel, for example, you know, a manufacturer will only know the performance of the line after the season or after, you know, the, the client comes back and places a reorder in which their insight is already delayed by a whole, like, let's say six to nine months. Yep. Um, and by then it could already be, you know, out of stock or, or out of, out of favor uh, uh, with the, with the client. The second point is actually much more interesting in which uh, this is kind of the dirty secret of, of, of a lot of these, these, um, these brands is the manufacturers nowadays have significantly improved and really, really sophisticated design and development in-house capabilities. Um, you know, historically, let's say 30, 40 years ago, a lot of the design and development um, and pattern making and, 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 you know, so on and so forth was, was always done on the brand side. Mm-hmm. Nowadays, I really call it more of a partnership in which the design and R&D um, talent in-house at a manufacturer is so great that sometimes, um, and this is, this is like extraordinarily, this is not just like startups. This is like huge multinational brands all the way to brands just starting out in which their buyers or merchandisers or product developers or designers will walk into a showroom that a manufacturer has made for a season. They'll pick like four or five, you know, styles from the manufacturer's design books or pattern books and then say like, okay, let's make some small tweaks, but like pretty much it's the manufacturer's design that we're iterating on. Oh, wow. I definitely would never have thought that. Yeah. I mean, it saves a lot of time if you think about it, because because yeah. developing a pattern from scratch is you know really time intensive and you have to ship samples back and forth all the time. Whereas if a manufacturer already had a lot of these samples pre- ready to go for you and you just had to tweak, let's say the material or stitching or like, you know, whatever it is on, on apparel specifically, it cuts down, um, you know, de- development time significantly. So, so that's like a little, you know, it, it happens like pretty much everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and really like the designers at that point in time are not really designers, but they're just like iterating on the final versions of, of products. But, um, yeah, I, I think that, that's uh, a good, that's, good secret that I never <laughs> knew about when you're thinking about getting maybe inspiration though, and you're looking around at some of the more luxury brands. I mean, how much of that can you actually take and use? Because when I'm thinking about like, there's certain things that without a logo on it, you'd probably be like, eh, is that, you know, from Walmart or like sometimes the logo <laughs> makes it where if it yeah. didn't have that, I don't know personally why anyone would ever buy it. And I sometimes don't know why they would buy it either way. But like, have you ever yeah. had an experiment like that where you've been trying to maybe let a brand or a popular brand influence products where then you're like, oh, actually the logo kind of made that one. Yeah. You know, I think the way I would respond is so, so one thing we really care about a lot at Italic is um, having a data-driven sense of merchandising in which, you know, we're using our customer insights um, to really drive the product decisions that we're making, both on the technology front as well as the product development front um, for our physical products. And I think what, what we realized is, to your point of, you know, does a logo make a product or does the product make the logo, uh, which is actually, you know, maybe a good way to think about it, is the fact that, like, Logos matter to some people and it doesn't matter to other people, mm-hmm. but everyone has a specific like category in their lives in which they care about having a logo and then vice versa. Like that same person might not care about having logos on other products that other people might. Yeah. So I guess a better way to put it is um, let's say, you know, you really care about having a logo on your handbag, but you actually, and I don't know if this is true or not, but like, um, you know, let's say you don't actually care about having like the top of the line, you know, logo on your, your bedding or, or all clad, you know, cookware or, you know, Lake say, you know, um, Dutch ovens or what have you, mm-hmm. right? Like, so let's say you're, that's, that's actually the mentality on the flip side. I think there's a lot of people out there who would actually have the alternative approach, which is like, I don't care if I have a big, you know, fancy handbag, but I am really into cooking. Um, and I want the fanciest like cookware and I need to have like XYZ brands, um, you know, cookware in order f- to feel good about my purchase. So what we found through a lot of our um, 
are surveying is like one, the main reason why people buy from us is quality yep. um, in terms of like the product. And the second is, is, is um, design and, uh, and overarching, I guess, like the main reason why you sign up is because you're getting quality at cost. So the price point and the value you're getting out of your products is really, really high. Um, relative to you know pretty much any other option out there because we're not making money on the products that we sell. So, so I think what we found is the 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 people who sign up like if you're a fashionista for example you're probably not not going to buy like our fashion products yeah. but you might actually sign up for your home goods and then vice versa as someone who really cares about like that specific type of bedding or having really great you know towels or candles or what have you but doesn't really care about you know having like a logo on your or, or the next trendy thing. Um, like the, the way we look at merchandising is really um, like anti-seasonal in which we're trying to find products that are always evergreen. Mm-hmm. Um, they might not be always in style or in vogue, but you, we know that they're consistent things that people will always want to buy. So that's why we try not to fall too hard into like having a specific branded look on our products. Um, the products should be able to stand for their own. I, I like that. I was just going to say quality always matters, I would think. Um I'm definitely your person because I'm a logoless person. I don't care about the brand or where they come from. If the quality is good, it doesn't matter to me who makes it as long as the quality is good and something lasts. So yeah, I like that. Yeah, exactly. So when we're thinking about metrics for a subscription business, yours is very unique, of course, because you know right now you're like, we're not going to make more than $100 per person. But how are you guys tracking things? Like what metrics are you looking at right now to see if things are going well? Yeah, you know, we... Um changed our metrics a lot as we transitioned from a transactional model into um, a subscription basis, as you can imagine. Mm -hmm. But what was interesting for me is like, because we run this type of membership in which it's not a, okay, I guess before I get there, there's really, in my mind, there's like three types of consumer subscription products. One is like, you get something in a box every month and it's on a, you know, set frequency that you can customize. Um, secondly, is you're you're paying a subscription for a discount, um, and then thirdly, is you're paying subscription for access to a certain product, whether it's digital or offline or whatever it is. And I think we fall into the latter two, in which you're provide you're you're paying for italic because you want a discount on your products, mm-hmm. um, but you're also paying for access to even shop those products in the first place. I think when we actually transition into this model, we realize like, hey, all those transactional revenue metrics that we're tracking are actually great indicators of engagement. So now those are our leading indicators of, you know, are these members happy? You know, are they getting the most out of their membership? Are they unhappy because they're not using it? Are they logging back in? Is the conversion rate high for members? You know, is our average order value like growing as we add new new uh, products or is that actually shrinking in which the products we're adding are actually you know, lower price points? Um, so on and so forth. And, and it's a pretty sophisticated, I think, um, model that we've had to build in order to actually price these products um, at a price where we're not you know, losing money on each sale, but also not making money. So, so on the engagement side, all the things that historically e-com companies would track, so conversion rate, your, um, your LTV, your frequency of purchase, you know, your contribution margins, like these are all things that have now become like performance indicators on a membership basis as a, as a cohort of, of how we track uh, a certain cohort doing over time. But now what matters on the company side is actually, are we adding new uh, annual subscribers um, happily? Are they staying? What's our opt-out rate? Uh, we offer like a 30-day period in which if you sign up and you decide not to place an order and you want to um, get a refund, we'll provide that no questions asked. Um, right now it's sub 5%. So I think like those are questions that, you know, we've, uh, or, or metrics that we've, you know, done a, uh, a pretty deep dive in terms of like what we actually want to see. Um, and, and those now really the, the core metrics are like, what's our new annual recurring revenue because it's an annual plan. Uh, and then secondly, like yeah. what is, you know, we don't have retention yet since our first cohort is um, still seven months out from renewing, but we, the second kind of indicator of that is like, what are all the engagement metrics telling us? And does that suggest that they're likely to churn or stay? So I think those are like the metrics that we've we've transitioned towards, and uh, and and um, and I mean there's a there's a lot more that I could kind of dig in there, but um, that's kind of at a high level how we think about it. That's great. So are there any methods right now that you're experimenting with and seeing success around when it comes to keeping your users engaged or staying top of mind to them, or even like different things that you're changing for the website that's kind of uh, connecting more with the customer when they're coming there? So any tests overall? Yeah. I mean, I think we, we aren't great about testing. Um, and I'll be really forthright about that. Like we don't have yeah. much testing infrastructure built in. Like we don't have the ability to test, you know, pricing, um, AB tests for us are, are really just like, I think, 
very, very uh, incremental changes. Um, I think the biggest step function change was just the transition from the transactional model. And I, I guess like the best way to kind of really put this is like, for example, during our pilot, we saw behaviors um, in frequency and lifetime value that we would expect on a transactional customer at month 12. We saw that on a membership level uh, between weeks four to six. Mm -hmm. So it was a literal 10x increase in utility um, and activity um, for that member versus a, a customer who, who would otherwise purchase the, the product as a standalone. So um, I think that's what I meant, like going back to the point of customers liked us, members really love us. That was something that we really saw. And then I think in terms of like, you know, metrics that we're, we're looking to um, kind of test or at least improve with our, our customer um, that can improve the experience for them, or at least hopefully it will increase their ability to, to st or, uh, increase our retention rates. I think that really comes in, in the form of what are the products that um, the, the, the main four reasons why people opt out just for full transparency. One is it's international uh, and we only serve the U.S. So yeah. they actually signed up too eagerly and they're like, hey, I didn't know that it was U.S. only. Yeah. That's actually the number one reason. Number two is financial. So it's like, hey, you know, I got furloughed or I was laid off, which, which happened a lot in, in the early days mm -hmm. um, in April and May. Um, nowadays, it's less common. But the last two are, are ones that we can directly address. So one is, you know, the product offering is currently um, not broad enough. Um, so you're, you don't have a product I, I want to see or a category that I want to see. Or lastly, the, the products that I, I want are out of stock. So those start directly in our control. So for example, you know, we'll show now um, in a coming soon page, like what products are, are coming next for members. And that keeps them excited. Um, secondly, what products um, are being restocked. So we can, we're, we're placing much, much larger orders uh, so that hopefully we don't have these stock out, uh, out of stock issues in which and really the reason was like our members just purchase at a substantially higher uh, frequency than the non-members did. So we actually under-ordered prior to the membership because we didn't know what to expect. Yeah. So I think like, those are things that like, you know, there's certain features like that that we developed for the, that use case. But really the only thing that we can solve for on a long-term basis is just develop more products, order more deeply, and hopefully as a result, acquire more members. Yeah, I love that. I mean, I think that's a really good point too about how to keep people engaged and coming back to see like, okay, what's coming next? Like, you know, what's the new uh, t-shirt that's coming out that I can get really excited about? Because I could see a lot of members, maybe at least in my head, I would think like if I am in a subscription or a membership, I would probably front load a lot of purchases right away to kind of get that value. And then I might forget, mm -hmm. but I think that's really smart to find ways to keep someone like me engaged coming back maybe a couple months later if I forget so that I will renew after the year. Exactly. I mean, I, I think for us, like really, the goal isn't necessarily to make you buy more stuff mm -hmm. if you don't need it. You know, that's uh, the goal is to like hopefully show that, hey, you're going to get enough value out of this membership so that you're going to stay another year or two or three or four or five um, in which there's a constant drop of new uh, or a constant allure of new products that will be down the line, such as products in travel or products in, for example, we just launched our, our jewelry line um, last month and oh, that sold nice. out like in a week. So now we know, hey, there's a lot of demand for that. We should order much deeper in it. Yep. Uh, so I think like constantly testing on the product side is something that we do a lot. But now that we're not making money on the transactions, we're not trying to force you to, to use it yeah. unless you want to yourself. Yeah, very, very cool. So I saw that you guys had a sign-up list. I think originally it was like over 100,000 or something along those lines. And I was wondering, how are you going about acquiring new customers? Like what kind of channels are working well for you right now? What are you finding success in? Yeah, I, <laughs> that's the hardest question for anyone in yes. commerce nowadays. <laughs> so, so in 2018, we, we, um, uh, we had a you know, strong wait list going into the, the membership. And then once we... Um, once we launched, we were like, hey, the membership's not going to work. So we, we dropped it. And, and instead, all of those people on the waitlist became our email subscribers. And we were, you know, fortunately, um, they eventually became customers as well. So that was where a lot of that 100,000 original list went to. Mm -hmm. And then more recently, we actually had another waitlist. This time, it wasn't for marketing purposes, but it was actually like a legitimate operational waitlist in which we didn't, we simply didn't have enough inventory to serve, you know, all of our members to a, a great experience in which if you logged on, like and a third of all the products were sold out, that's not something you want to see mm -hmm. um, as a first time experience. So, so we had the wait list up for a while um, up until, you know, we can restock more deeply um, to address those issues, which we, we've recently done. Um, in terms of the new uh, customer acquisition, I'll, I'll be like totally honest. 
it's a mix of performance marketing and brand marketing. Mm-hmm. Um, we internally separate our marketing team into two. One is is brand, which is everything non-pixel-based or non-attributable to a pixel. And everything uh, growth is pixel-based in which it's... Um, you know, pixel attributable. And the intention of, of growth uh, is to um, is to grow the membership base. The intention of brand is to keep our cost per acquisition on the growth side low so that hopefully it's not the first time that you're seeing, let's say, an ad from us, mm-hmm. but instead it's actually a recall. So examples of that would be like influencer would be in brand, TV would be um, in brand, even though I know there's pretty good models for tracking nowadays and attributing podcasts, we still put in brand. Even all these things, I guess I'm kind of, being hypocritical because like those do have pixels nowadays, but Mm -hmm. really like the intention of those is to get in front of you first so that um, by the time that you see a Facebook ad or a Google ad that, uh, that you're already aware of what we are. So your, your interest is already peaked. Cool. All right. So we have a lightning round coming up before I move on. Is there anything that you were excited to cover that I forgot to ask? Well, our basics are dropping tomorrow. So tell me more. Tell me more about. Uh, Um, we've had a line of recycled t-shirts for a while and those were, uh, really, really popular through, um, a lot of quarantine and the number one requested kind of products for us for years has been a line of just great, you know, tees, mm-hmm. um, you know, playing, um, really high quality, um, t-shirts and, uh, yeah, it's finally, finally coming out. I mean, I've been waiting literally like a year for this, so, Ooh. um, I'm super excited, but that's all. That's, I mean, that's, it. that's great. I love a good t-shirt. And then I actually feel like that's like, I mean, maybe it's always been a trend and I just haven't paid attention, but now it feels like it's really coming back to just wear a, like a normal plain t-shirt or just something like simple on it. It feels like it's coming back strong, but maybe it was, yeah. it's always been here. Yep. I mean, it's, it's not surprising. I, I feel like a lot of people, you know, nowadays, like I'm sure there's a lot more people out there who could speak much more eloquently on, on why basics are great, but basics are always, you know, in, in vogue and, and people um, have been, our members have been requesting it very actively. So I'm excited to finally get that out. I will definitely have to check into that when it drops. All right, let's move on to the lightning round brought to you by our friends at Salesforce Commerce Cloud. This is where I'm going to ask you a question and you have a minute or less to answer. Are you ready, Jeremy? Yes. All right. What's up next on your reading list? Oh, well, I actually just got a copy. <laughs> this, this is going to paint me in a bad, bad, bad light, but I, I, I don't always read like business books, but um, I just got a copy of Reed Hastings new book. Um, I'm excited to, to dig in. I literally just got it like right before this, this, um, this interview. So that'll be, that'll be next. Oh, cool. What's the, what's the title of it? I don't know if I know which one that is. Um, no rules rules. Oh, okay. I will have to check that out. You have to let me know if you like it. Yeah, we'll do. All right. What's up next on your Netflix queue? <laughs> I, I've been actually watching a, uh, The Legend of Avatar. <laughs> okay. I don't know if I've actually seen that one. <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's like an anime cartoon that, that used to run on Nickelodeon as a kid. And I forgot how good it was. So I, I just watched that again. That's great. For, uh, Netflix probably knows saying. not to advertise that to me. They're like, you just probably won't like that, Stephanie. <laughs> <laughs> right. It, all right. If you were to have a podcast, what would the podcast be about and who would your first guest be? Ooh, I've actually been thinking about doing one. Um, nice. You should. Oh yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's been, uh, it's been on the list. Um, that's actually why I have this fancy mic here. Um, you do sound great. I wanted to do like a podcast show where I, like I live in Park City, Utah. So um, there's a lot of great, like, and I, I, I took up fishing during um, quarantine. Nice. I haven't really caught anything, but it's really relaxing. So I, uh, <laughs> Uh, I thought it'd be fun to like go out and uh, go fishing and then do an interview at the same time. And, uh, and I think guest wise, someone who I, you know, one brand I've admired for a long time is like the, um, and I, I, I like loosely know them, but um, I've, I've really liked the, uh, the Buffy team for a long time. I feel like they've, mm-hmm. they're, they're pretty unique in which like they're, you know, they have a lot of success and they've, um, but they've still been kind of humble about it and, and low to the ground. So um, I think it'd be really cool to have them. I'm not, I mean, my background isn't just like e-commerce and, and retail. So I think it'd be a mixture, but yeah, that, that would be a cool one. I like it. I can only imagine you catching a fish while trying to interview and how that would sound. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Very interesting. All right. Next, the, what is a favorite piece of tech that is making you more efficient right now or that you're enjoying? Oh man, that is a tough one. Um, I use a lot and my, uh, the whole like italic team you know, makes fun of me for it. Cause I, I always add something new every week. Um, I, I think the one that stuck with me for years is this company called missive. 
Um, it's a collaborative email inbox um, that allows the entire team to work um, kind of in conjunction on, on emails. So let's say it's a, um, you know, an email with a vendor um, or an email with a, you know, YouTuber who we want to advertise with, like we can collaborate in line um, without having to go to Slack or take it to another email thread in, in the same place. So Missive and Front in the same vein does the same thing. So, so I think those two products are, are ones that like I really couldn't live without. Oh, that actually sounds really good. Can you send it out? Like if I was one of your employees, could I say send this out under Jeremy's email because he gets better responses as the CEO than I will? <laughs> Personal question. This is something there's I actually a, want to know for myself. Yeah. There's, there's actually a setting to do that in which you can share an address and other people, you know, like let's say an assistant can send it for you. So um, yes. I like that. Okay. I'll have to check that out. Awesome. All right. The last uh, slightly more difficult question. What one thing will have the biggest impact on e-commerce in the next year? You know, I, uh, <laughs> I'm not going to give you the cliche answer and say COVID changed everything, <laughs> which it did, but, um, we all know that now. Yeah. I actually think it happened last year and, and I already alluded to this in, in earlier, but I think, um, the biggest change will be the transition from, uh, you know, people have been talking about these like DTC waves. Um, you know, the first wave was like the Bonobos, Warby, Everlane, um, 2008, to, like 2012 era. And then the second wave was like everything thereafter. And, and a lot of the, you know, direct to consumer brands you see nowadays is like the, the category leaders per se. But I think now people, and that went, let's say from like 20, I don't know, 2014 to like 2018, 2019. I think there's been a big change in the operating mentality of these, these newer brands in which if you're a new brand starting out, like you can't go out and raise these massive rounds that these companies used to off of, you know, revenue growth because people have realized now this is not technology revenue growth. Mm -hmm. Um, this isn't like an 80, 90% north of, um, you know, gross margin product. Uh, there is a saturation level to performance marketing. I know I'm sounding like quite cynical here, but, um, but the, I, I, I mean that actually in, in an interesting opportunity in which you can actually raise that money. But I think if you're creative about cash flow and you're creative about how you grow the business, um, you can build a huge business. And like, um, I guess Gymshark would be a great example of this in which you can bootstrap to a really large volume um, without having to, to raise equity financing. Um, and I think you could do it through, you know, focusing on cash conversion cycle, which is what you know, Gymshark has with its vendors, or you can have um, in a, a case of like owned uh, supply chain, like house or, um, or Buffy does. Uh, I think there's like different ways that you can kind of frame the, the direct to consumer model that allows you to still grow. But I, I think the era of venture back DTC getting into the series A, B, C and onwards is, is probably over. So um, I think that's already happened. And I think that'll probably be the biggest impact on the ecosystem. Yep. I mean, yeah, I completely agree with that. So if you sound cynical, then I think cynical too, because I completely agree with that. That's a really good point. All right, Jeremy, this has been such a fun interview. Where can people find out more about you and Italic? Yeah, Italic is um, at italic.com. And I am at jjeremykai, J-J-E-R-E-M-Y-C-A-I on Twitter. I think that's the, the easiest way. But yeah, would love to have anyone as a member. Awesome. Yeah, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you. Hey, everyone. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, you'll probably also love our e-commerce newsletter. To get it delivered straight to your inbox every week, sign up at mission.org slash upnextincommerce. Upnext in Commerce is brought to you by Salesforce Commerce Cloud and created by the team at mission.org. Subscribe now at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you for checking out another epic hour of business insights and inspiration on the Up Next in Commerce podcast. If you like what you've heard and you're interested in partnering with us to bring your brand to a growing audience of e-commerce experts, reach out to me at stephanie at mission.org to get the conversation started.